1: Welcome to Let It Roll, a podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Ed Ward and Nate talk about 1968, The year of riots and revolution, the year of newcomers like Led Zeppelin and Sly and the Family Stone, and the band who led a musical counter-revolution. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
0: It's time to let it roll i'm your host nate wilcox and once again we have the honor of being joined by ed ward to continue our series on his book the history of rock and roll volume 2 1964 to 1977 actually 1975 the beatles the stones and the rise of classic rock today we'll be talking about chapter four which you titled it's 1969 okay now ed why did you ta- call this one it's 1969 okay because it actually covers Basically, 1968. Well,
2: I think it mostly had, had to do with the fact that the big change that was happening, um, or, or a, a big change that was in the works was the release of the Stooges album and this um, kind of simplification
0: of what had become a very complex music. And the Sto- the Stooges were prophetic, and you didn't plug yourself, but you were one of the few critics at the time in the pages of Rolling Stone to give them a positive review.
2: Yeah, and I've been pilloried for it ever since by Brits who think that Rolling Stone didn't like the record. However, Mr. Osterberg has said to me, you got it, so... I'm happy that somebody understands
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, well done, and one thing that's interesting that you pointed out in this chapter is that the major labels were really struggling with how to adapt to the new rock era. They knew the baby boom was huge, they knew where their bread was buttered, but they frankly had no idea what to sell to the kids or what bands to pick and some labels like Electra which signed the Stooges brought in what they called a house hippie and in the case of Electra was Danny Fields who signed the Stooges and the MC5 and others how did some of the other labels try to deal with this situation well they basically tried to figure out what was selling even
2: in small quantities and see if they couldn't amplify that um, and they did also have house hippies. I mean, I know uh, Jim Ferrat was at Mercury and uh, trying to think of who else. Well, to a certain extent, uh, Van Dyke Parks uh, was uh, doing Warner Brothers selections.
0: And you oh, mentioned an anecdote think. about Van Dyke Parks where they actually took out an ad about his album Song Cycle, I guess bragging, or humble bragging, how we lost $35,509.50 on, quote, the album of the year, damn it. What was going on with that?
2: Well, it, it was not the kind of thing that got played on Top 40 Radio, and nor was it the kind of thing that you could excerpt decently for uh, FM play. It really didn't fit in anywhere. It was lush orchestral and had really enigmatic lyrics for the most part
0: it also had one of the first uh, songs by randy newman and it and it wasn't hard rock at all which i think really held it back because this was a year that hard rock really started to sell right this was the year of uh, cream and Jimi hendrix and Led Zeppelin, and Atlantic had, you know, historically been the great rhythm and blues record, but, you know, Cream is on Atlantic, Led Zeppelin's on Atlantic, they're also signing heavy American bands like the Vanilla Fudge and Iron Butterfly. What was going on at Atlantic to make that change? Well, there there was a split between
2: the two major um, owners, Ahmed Erdogan and, and Jerry Wexler. Wexler was very much the soul man, um Despite the political upheaval around his being in that scene and Ahmet was uh, he was from a jazz background and he was intrigued by the by the um, sophistication as he perceived it of some of these British bands
0: and and it worked out for him but around this time Ahmet, bends to Wexler's will and sells Atlantic to Warner Brothers, which has just bought Frank Sinatra's reprise label and uh, is going to buy Electra shortly down the road. And one of the unintended casualties of that was Stax Records, which had had a distribution deal with Atlantic for years. And in the course of these business maneuverings discovered that they had been completely snookered by jerry wexler and and had signed away the rights to all of their tapes and were now cut loose so stacks basically had to start from scratch they not only lost the biggest star otis writing at the end of the year of 1967 which we discussed last time uh, but now they lose sam and dave who go back to the mothership of atlantic and basically have to reinvent themselves but they do it under the leadership of al bell who's an african-american dj turned record mogul yeah he Al Al Bell is one of the
2: unsung heroes of uh, soul music at that time he was a very canny businessman his um, personal interactions were very interesting and uh, he was also able to defuse a lot of the um, accusations of racism that
0: uh, were leveled at stacks at that point yeah, because they were a label that was uh, white-owned, um, and and they bring in Al Bell first as an executive and then a partner and eventually full owner, and he manages to pull off quite a few feats here. He, he cuts a new business deal, gets major funding with, with a new partner, puts out an enormous number of records, and starts having hits with things like Johnny Taylor's Who's Making Love to Your Old Lady while you was out making love. Yeah, he and he, he, yeah, he did have a good nose
2: for talent. Uh, under Alva, didn't, didn't he also convince the Staple Singers to go pop? He did. Have, he did break away from the pure gospel roots that they were um, that they were best known
0: for. Yeah, they, they put to do that for a while, but I think they, they hadn't found the material. And, and with Stax, that was not a problem. They put out hits like Respect Yourself and other classics. And you alluded to the political issues that Jerry Wexler in particular faced, and it all comes to a head when Martin Luther King is tragically assassinated in Memphis, you know, and Stax has to put up barbed wire fences around the parking lot they close their record store they actually bring in muscle a guy named johnny baylor from new york who's an ex-boxer and uh, ex-military to chase away some of these thugs and opportunists that are pulling crap like mugging duck dunn in the parking lot of stacks records right. but, but wexler is faced with a situation where at at the natra conference which was a conference for african-american djs people are being hung in effigy and King Curtis the legendary saxman, actually fast walked Jerry Wexler out of there because there was a credible set threat on his life yeah and uh, he, um, he
2: had to do a business meeting with Carla Thomas and um, she had to go through the, the freight elevator in his hotel to meet with him I mean it, it was really it was really crazy the, the issues of, of racism you know the, the fact that Stax was Stax and um, even at Motown, their, their competitor, um, a great number of musicians were, were white. That was just a fact of life. I mean, they, these, these white musicians, you know, at, at Muscle Shoals and in Memphis, if you, if you told them they had to play country music, you know, they, they'd sell their
0: guitars. <laughs> very true and Motown had a almost all-white sales force and and come un, came under some heat for that and while we're talking about Motown they lose their biggest writing team the Holland Dozier Holland team they went on a soft strike at the end of 67 and Barry Gordy was so disconnected from Detroit and Motown's operations at the time because he's out in LA trying to establish him in Hollywood he didn't even notice for a few months how did how did yeah. Motown deal with the loss of their biggest songwriting team? They just kept on going. They tried to develop more uh, songwriting and producing talent,
2: but the um, Holland Brothers and Lamont Dozier were a, um, they they were a real team. They worked together seamlessly writing songs and and producing sessions. And um, they proved that by going and starting their own labels. And making
0: really wonderful records, although they weren't promoted as well as they should have been. And it took them a couple of years, though, because they're tied up in court fighting Barry Gordy. But meanwhile, right. a guy named Norman Whitfield uh, takes over the Temptations, who fired their lead singer, David Ruffin, and integrated a new lead singer in Dennis Edwards. But Norman Whitfield's been going out to the clubs and, and checking out a little combo called Funkadelic, and it shows up in the, in the Temptations' new sound. Right, Funkadelic
2: was a basically a rock band. I mean, they, they featured their lead guitarist, um, just like any other rock band would, Eddie, Eddie Hazel, and um, they. Um, but they were using the, the the rhythm section was very much patterned on James Brown. It was a very unusual and, and innovative thing that didn't sell any records with the FM white audience at all, but was huge in um, college towns where historically black uh, institutions were holding sway in, in Washington, D.C., you know, the folk dog was huge. Um, they sold
0: out giant auditoriums. And and would keep growing throughout the next decade, but for the time being, you know, Whitfield and the Temptations still the march, and you bring up James Brown, and he's You know been building transitioning to funk for the last couple of years 66 67 and in boston he plays a gig he flies back from africa the day mlk is killed and he has a gig in boston that's initially canceled but the city fathers realized that it would be a lot better to have james brown occupying a lot of black kids in the theater and put him on tv and not just live on TV but then they rebroadcast it on tape immediately afterwards Many All people they credit James Brown with preventing a major riot in Boston but he had some difficulties with the audience there on, at the show right the, the bunch of kids rushed the stage rushed onto the stage and James
2: just with the power of his chariz- charisma stopped anything from happening I mean there's there's a, a film made of this out of the um, out of the
0: television tapes, and it's well worth watching to see this see this happen. And that's a perfect cue to seg up our segue into our first number, which is not going to be a song. This is actually James Brown quelling the people who have charged the stage and taken over the stage and tried to stop his show. So this is James Brown pleading with his audience to pull themselves together and let him perform. This is uh, in Boston the night after MLK's assassination. No, no, no. No. Uh, wrong? Are you making me? You're not being fair to yourself and me either. You're not being fair to yourself and me at all your race.
2: Now, I asked the police to step back because I figured I could get some respect for my own people that makes sense. And are we together, Wayne? Get
0: the thing, man. And that was James Brown pleading with his fans to be orderly and let the show go on in Boston, which ultimately succeeded. It was a dicey moment, but like you said, James Brown's charisma was able to, to calm the crowd and and get the show back on the road, and he follows this up with a very political hit, I'm black and I'm proud, which is a big change for James Brown, who'd been pretty apolitical up to that point. Yeah, he um, he realized what was going on, and
2: uh, he was not a fan of, of Martin Luther King's at all. But he realized what the historical moment was, and that that was very important in, in what he in grabbing the zeitgeist, basically, which is what he did. You know, he, it, it's not all that I don't know controversial to say I'm black and I'm proud but it was a really important thing to say at that point
0: and And, uh, the song was a pretty big hit yeah and it's also one of his last hit singles so it did cost him with the wide audience at the time and and historically it was a pretty novel statement, as sad as that is, just to express pride in who you are on the part of African Americans. Meanwhile, other people are picking up on the funk sound James Brown's been laying down, and notably Sly and the Family Stone breakthrough big around this time.
2: Right. They were the unknown San Francisco band. They they weren't part of the ballroom scene at all. But um they got a contract with Epic and uh, by the time their second album came along, they'd pretty much solidified what they were trying to do. Of course, Sly was a longtime music business veteran. He he had a, a show on KSOL Soul Radio in uh, in Oakland, and um, he uh, also had produced a lot of records uh, with with Tom Donahue for his uh, his label, and uh, he'd written a bunch too. Uh, and so he he was another guy coming up in the moment and uh, a lot of his stuff was you know I, I won't say political but it was
0: it was politically tinged the way Jay Brown's was and and the the lineup of Sly and the Family Stone was inherently political and inherently positive but and he deliberately did this he put together an integrated band with white musicians and uh a boy-girl band. He had his sister in the band and, and, and multiple women, so you've got uh, an integrated, gender-diverse band that really, nothing like that had been seen uh, that scope before. Right. It was, as as he said, on as the title of his first album, a whole new thing. And and other people are picking up on the funk, too. You tell the story of Archie Bell and the Drells, which was a, a Houston combo. Remember today for Tighten Up, which is kind of a one-hit wonder, but part of the problem was that Archie Bell uh, was actually drafted in, in the Army when that song dropped. Yeah. He, he heard it was the number one record
2: while I was in the hospital with a minor injury, but and, uh, it didn't hurt his career. He's he's still going to a certain extent, and he, he made some brilliant records, including for um, Philadelphia
0: International uh, after he got out of the Army and i'm glad you brought up philadelphia international because gamble and huff the production team that's going to found that label is just beginning to have their first hits with things like the intruders cowboys and girls yeah and and the uh, uh, the intruders was the, was the first group that
2: they um, actually got to experiment with and um, pretty soon other uh, other acts who weren't satisfied with where they were like harold melvin and the blue notes and the ojs um came to them to see if gable and huff couldn't inject a little bit of something into what they were
0: recording and um, and make it work better and it did and they're laying the the path that will eventually lead to disco with their use of strings and luscious luscious arrangements meanwhile the flying yeah. symbols in the section. Absolutely, absolutely. And meanwhile, though, the, the the major labels are floundering around, and I was tempted to segue into one of the biggest flounders of this time when we were talking about James Brown in Boston, but I wanted to hit the soul and funk scene first. But MGM decided to answer the success of the San Francisco scene, which has seen acts like Jefferson Airplane break out big in the past year. They come out with the Bostown sound, uh, featuring bands nobody'd ever heard of, even in Boston.
2: Right, that was that was a huge mistake. Um, it was largely the work of one manager, who said he had all the cool bands in town, you know, signed to him. And so, why don't you let me um, sign a few of them to MGM, the <laughs> ultimate spinach, you know, bands like that. Nobody, they they hadn't played. I mean, it was a fairly healthy ballroom scene in Boston at that time
0: and these guys never played it and and one one fiasco that you didn't get into in this chapter that happened around the same time is Columbia who's betting big on Janis Joplin with Big Brother and the Holding Company and that's going to succeed marvelously for them with a huge number one hit album in Cheap Thrills but they also bet big on Moby Grape and really messed that up royally like we talked about in the last episode, but they also put out an ad campaign, The Man Can't Bust Our Music. What was up with that? Well, it was a way, you know, like you were saying, these
2: companies had no real organic feeling for reaching the kids they were trying to sell records to. And um, the the idea that uh, The Man Can't Bust Our Music, you know, because everybody knows people were getting busted for all kinds of things you know not just smoking pot but for taking part in demonstrations and other things like that um what's weird about that ad was uh, almost all the albums that were um that were advertised in it were classical
0: (laughs) that is absolutely crazy and another byproduct of the labels a, not having any idea what they're doing, and B, throwing a ton of money around, because when they do hit with things like Jimi Hendrix or Janis Stoplin, they're heading big. And and there's a new wave of underground publications headed up by a San Francisco magazine. You mean Mojo Navigator? <laughs> I was thinking of more of your former uh, byline at Rolling Stone, actually. Yeah, uh, Rolling Stone started up
2: as a sort of on the Tales of the Monterey Pop Festival, uh, this ambitious uh, University of California Berkeley student, Jan Wenner, uh, was helping with the PR for Monterey and, and decided, yeah, sure, I'd like to do a, a magazine like this, you know, patterned on Downbeat, which was a weekly, I guess Downbeat was monthly but um it was a, a magazine that not only helped you make decisions about what jazz records to buy but also had news and interviews with leading jazz performers and the fact that nothing like that existed for um for rock music was something I think John wanted to uh, wanted to remedy and along those lines he hired his managing editor, the uh, San Francisco stringer for Newsweek magazine John
0: Burks, who had reviewed got, Monterey Pop in the pages of Newsweek. Yeah no, that was um, Leiden. Ah, my bad man. my bad?
2: But uh, I think John probably
0: was his editor on the on the piece. And you pointed out that piece was more criticism and that Rolling Stone's Secret Sauce was focusing on news as well as criticism and filling a big vacuum. Yeah, because nobody knew
2: anything. There were fan magazines, you know, like Teen... uh, Teen Beat and Tiger Beat and 16. Looking for. And there there were actually serious people working for them, you know. Danny Fields was was writing for them and, and sort of trying to walk a line between cute, cuddly pop stars and this monster that was lurking on the other, I don't know, the the other side of the music business
0: and, and that nobody in the music business really understood that well. Yeah, and he was at Datebook and actually – accidentally triggered the whole John Lennon were bigger than Jesus scandal by by publicizing an interview with Maureen Cleave. So, yeah, Fields had <laughs> quite a bit to answer for culturally, and and he made up partly for that by signing the MC5 in Detroit, which is a big ballroom scene in Detroit. What was going on there? All kinds of stuff. It, it was basically,
2: it was working class kids and and loud guitars. The MC5 were just the tip of the iceberg. The Stooges, who Danny uh, also signed that weekend, uh, and uh, you know, Tea Garden and Van Winkle, Bob Seeger the Bob Seeger's System, SRC, um, the Up, the Fruit. I mean, there were so many bands there, um, from bored
0: kids with money, they could afford to buy a guitar and an amplifier, and, and what's did. Let's hear a little bit of that. This is The Stooges 1969, which actually in the chapter with, but let's go ahead and hear it. This is Iggy and the Stooges 1969. All
2: well, right. Well, it's 1969, okay. And that was The Stooges with
0: 1969 which got a little bit of press attention but sold no records. Right. Elektra
2: really bombed out on that and I think Danny was let go shortly afterwards. Elektra focused more on um, sort of weird semi-classical rock bands like Ars nova and the new york rock and roll ensemble that were you know
0: complete failures but but not likely to go down to fields department store uh, uh, and plaster the front windows with memos on the electric letterhead featuring the Word motherfucker all over the place like the mc5 did and the mc5 imploded spectacularly as a result of that stuff like the album is selling launched into the top 20 they're on the cover of rolling stone and then very quickly they totally implode elector drops them they're being protested uh on both coasts when they played new york and san francisco they're hit hard uh, from the left and the right. Uh, Lester Bangs publishes an infamous pan of their album in Rolling Stone, the issue after they had hyped him up by putting him on the cover. And, you know, the MC5 re-signed to Atlantic and put out a second classic album that presages New Wave, but they never recover their connection with popular audiences. No, they they really didn't. They they were a, a bomb live. Which... And that was partially
2: because of the context they came out of, which was um, their manager, John Sinclair, was a self-described poet who was also a, a jazz bow. And he encouraged them to do things like play songs um, by Sun Ra and, and go more towards free jazz. And, and that went over well
0: in Detroit, but it was not welcome but either of the coasts. And everybody's sort of having the same struggle with labels, you know, sometimes they're hitting and sometimes they're missing. And one label that finds a, a new vein uh, is Buddha, which comes up with something that's later called Bubblegum. What's the story there? Well, it was an easily produced
2: factory sort of music, and it was also so simple that really young children were buying it and this was an untapped market but there were tons of the kids out there to uh, literally kids um, out there to reach and so um, Neil Bogart who was the head of the label just got the idea that this was something they could they could make money on so with his producers Kasnitz and Katz he um, he made this factory He, he took Bands, real bands. I mean, I saw the Lemon Pipers in concert in um, Dayton back when they were just a rock band, and they were really good. But the only uh, label that would sign them was Buddha, and so they put out these really stupid um, records like Green Tambourine and Rice Is Nice. You know, they they could have done better than that, but this was the
0: this was the the chance they got and so they went with it and one band that was cut out in a way that i hadn't really put together before i'd always sort of wondered how the monkeys went from enormously huge in 66 and 67 to just having the ground cut out from under them in 68 but you point out that they were undone by their efforts to meet the standards of of sort of the nascent adult rock scene. They, they they threw out the session players, they learn to play their own instruments, they start writing more of their own songs, and suddenly they lose their teeny bopper audience but press ahead and actually make a movie uh, with Jack Nicholson and Frank Zappa and all kinds of characters involved. What was the story with that?
2: Well, I mean, it's, uh, I'll correct you slightly, in that, you know, Michael Nesmith had been playing the clubs as Michael Blessing before he joined the uh, the Monkees, and um, they had always had a, a certain amount of of, um, of talent, and so the idea of writing their own material was not alien to them. Um, as to the movie head, I'm not quite sure. I think it was just that people saw. A hard day's night and help and they thought well what's the next thing for a big band so they they had the, the monkeys make a movie and I think the um, some of the uh, input into it was from the band and I mean the thing the movie starts with them jumping off a bridge very very odd film it it really doesn't make any sense at
0: all the movie but um, it's not as bad as you may have heard. <laughs> well, I, I, in my younger drug-soaked days in the psychedelic 90s, uh, that was actually kind of a big favorite in dorm rooms and things like that when people were getting messed up. It, it's right up there with Dennis Hopper's last movie and other sort of psychedelic make-no-sense movies that, that people can still enjoy when they're in an altered state. So, so the, the monkeys get a little bit of crab. But on the, on the album label front, there's sort of a rebellion coming from England where the Beatles announced they've got a label. What's the story of Apple Records? Well, the story is that
2: that EMI was making far more money than the Beatles were off the Beatles um, product. And the um, I, I think Brian Epstein felt that it would be a good idea for the boys to... Uh, Gain more power over their own career, and so they um, they formed this label. But you know everything was utopian, and and we were all one back then. So it was not just a label for the Beatles. There would be other uh, other signings on the Apple label, and there were you know Lon and Derek Van Eaton, who are almost. You know not heard of anymore the Ivies who became Badfinger um, James Taylor who just wandered into their office plus you know it was a it was a multimedia approach to the Beatles there was also a, a boutique with clothing uh, designed by their friends and uh,
0: you know other other little things like that yeah and, and unfortunately because of Epstein's death the year prior although he'd been involved in the initial planning for Apple, the thing is, you know, the inmates are running the asylum and the Beatles are losing money hand over fist. But fortunately, they're also able to put out some of the most commercial product of their careers in 68 with the H.U. Revolution single followed up by the White Album. How did fans react to what are clearly changes going on behind the scenes, but nothing was explicitly announced? Did, Did fans pick up on the fact that Basically, the White Album is a collection of solo artists, you know, four solo artists working together as a backing band for each other on their tracks. You know, I have no idea what, what fans saw. You know, the, the media, which, which is kind
2: of a mirror of fandom, um, was very undeveloped back then. Rolling Stone was the only place to find out about stuff, and, and their um, policy was the Beatles are perfect and everything they do is perfect, and so if you don't get it, listen again. <laughs> so, I don't I don't know what what fans thought. Um everybody bought the albums. They were
0: Be- the Beatles, you know, this is the new album by the Beatles. Yeah. That, as, that's it. All you need to know. Uh, yeah, as Paul McCartney has said, it's the Bloody Beatles White album. Shut up and enjoy it. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> But <laughs> and, and, and meanwhile, the, the Beatles' biggest rival in the UK, the Rolling Stones, they'd struggled in 67 with legal problems, with Brian Jones's various ailments, and with Psychedelia put out a big-selling but not well-received album in Her Satanic Majesty's Request, their Satanic Majesty's Request. But in 68, they come roaring back with the Jumpin' Jack Flash single, Street Fighting Man single, and ultimately the Beggar's Banquet album. Were they the standard bearers for the new hard rock yeah they 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 were uh, un, until Led Zeppelin could get a,
2: a foothold that they they were they were the kind of band that you could play their music if you had a if you had your own band, you know, it was easy enough to copy and so it wasn't easy enough to uh, copy the songwriting aspect of it but uh, you could do a
0: stone's copy band easily with material you could get down at the neighborhood music store and it's picked up on the other side of the atlantic with groups like steppenwolf who has a huge hit with born to be wild they'd originally been a band called sparrow coming out of the canadian scene in toronto and like so many of their cohorts they migrated to the west coast and and broke big But meanwhile, in England, there's something called the Blues Revival going on. What's what's the story there? Well, that was because a number of the jazz musicians in
2: England knew that there was a a kind of uh, background to jazz in blues and that much of the blues music was not sophisticated in the same way as jazz was but that learning the tricks of blues learning the structure and the, the way to play it was important for jazz musicians so uh, at, at clubs like Ronnie Scott's I mean Ronnie Scott had this big band that was a, a real hit with uh, club goers and uh, in between sets by the big band there would be blues band Um, Alexis Corner had had one called Blues Incorporated and um, that was the the band that uh, caused Brian Jones to to discover rhythm and blues and and, you know it was it was something that was a big deal. Everybody thought you know one thing everybody thought that they could play blues the whole kind of white man played blues Uh, thing was just a canard it was not even worth mentioning and white men could play the blues Michael Bloomfield for instance could to to an extent Eric Clapton could Uh, and rock and blues did have a a very comfortable uh, relationship to each other as Jimi Hendrix proved so that was that was what that was about so blues bands like Climax Blues Band
0: and Fleetwood Mac um, became pop stars in England. And, and Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac, which is totally overshadowed by the later Lindsay Buckingham, Stevie Nicks, Fleetwood Mac of the 70s. But Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac put out some excellent stuff. And, you know, he was kind of the second of the three great guitarists that apprentice under John May, first you had Eric Clapton. Then you've got Peter Green. And then you've got Mick Taylor, who's going to join the Stones as Brian Jones' replacement. We'll talk about that next time. But like you say, meanwhile, you know, that's that's the credible wing of, of the blues revival in England. But then there's bands like Ten Years After with Albert Lee. And while Fleetwood Mac struggles to make it in the States, Ten Years After is pretty much immediately a sensation in the States. And it does not hold up well over time. Well, you know, it's, it's excess. That was what they
2: were about. And uh, you can see that in the Woodstock film, uh, well you can't anymore because it's been cut out. But uh, uh, Alvin Lee figured that by playing louder and faster than anybody, he was expressing the blues, uh, which those people disagreed with.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but before we switch to talk about Woodstock, which I'm glad you brought up, let's hear one sort of oddball track that came out of the UK this that year and became a huge hit. This is Arthur Brown's "Fire." was the crazy world of arthur brown with fire which was a totally left field hit but it was enormous uh in both the uk and the u.s i think it made number two in the u.s and and brown had a really over-the-top stage show that sort of presages things like kiss and and glam rock in the 70s Mm -hmm.
2: yeah yeah he um he was progressive rock basically members of that band went on to other uh other prog outfits, Mr. Brown was a little bit too eccentric for mass appeal, but uh, setting your head on fire in the course of your uh, act as he did uh, was always a surefire crowd pleaser.
0: (laughs) But since you brought up Woodstock, we'll go ahead and talk about that. Like that Monterey Pop had been a very successful festival in 67 in California and there had been some imitations. One of the guys involved with Woodstock had done a festival in Miami that hadn't been a big financial success, but it had gotten good press attention. And how did they pull off Woodstock? What was it about the location of that festival that added an element of intrigue and mystery that helped them sign a lot of big name acts that they wouldn't have been able to if people hadn't suspected a certain superstar was gonna come out of hiding and play at that show? Right. They called it, I mean,
2: they never called it Woodstock. Uh, Well, wait, they did eventually, yeah. But um, Woodstock was where Bob Dylan was living, and uh, that was what they thought. A lot of the people thought they were going to see was Bob Dylan returning in glory from his semi-retirement in the nearby community. (laughs) The actual festival was in Bethel, New York, but... um, That was because various town fathers kept forcing the promoters to change the
0: the venue. And as you point out, it was pretty much a fiasco there at the time. I mean, there's no parking, there's very little food, very little water it rains the whole time, they're in a cow pasture, so it's a giant muddy field, and things happen like Jimi Hendrix ends up playing early Monday morning to just a handful, a couple thousand people, after there had been as many as a half a million seeing acts earlier in the day. What was it that saved Woodstock, and why is it seen retrospectively as such a big deal?
2: Well, it was, what saved it was film money. The selling the film rights to the festival help them stay afloat. Uh, that, that, there was that. And then the myth of Woodstock was largely propagated by the film. The people
0: who were there that I knew really did not enjoy themselves. But like you point out, if you're watching it a year later in a comfortable theater and you're able to smoke a little doobie in the parking lot, maybe drop a tab to time for the scene, your favorite band do their set on film... It was a whole different experience. The bathroom when you want to, in a real life sanitary bathroom, <laughs> and not not have to suffer the crowds. And then, and, but we brought up Dylan, and there's a whole scene that that's circling around Dylan. Even though he, you know, he quit touring after '66 he puts out a a pretty understated album john wesley harding at the end of 67 but he's been recording and writing demo songs with this group called that becomes known later as the band i hadn't realized that their first album music from big pink came out and they hadn't been named yet the rolling stone actually named them the band i don't think Rolling stone named them it's just somebody had they had to come up with a
2: name and uh, I, I'm not sure Rolling Stone was
0: responsible for that name, but I don't know. They were the band. They were the band, and they were doing some of these songs, Tears of Rage and I Shall Be Released, that were co-written by Bob Dylan and are part of this demo album he put out and sent acetates around to groups like Manfred Mann in the UK, The Birds, who are undergoing massive transitions uh, to get – get one of these songs, Fairport convention gets one of these songs and like a whole genre that we now call Americana it traces its its beginnings to that. But was that how it was seen at the time? Well, it was seen as,
2: as something anomalous. It wasn't about virtuosity. It was about good songwriting, not necessarily by Bob Dylan, but these guys were writing good songs on their own. Um, it was it was kind of the sound of the future. And the sound of the past at the same time. It, it was it was a mystery. It had been a, a
0: while since you know rock music had, had mystery to it. And and it has a huge influence immediately. And the next trend I want to bring up that you talk about in the chapter is bands were breaking up left and right and reforming. And one of these bands that breaks up is cream in part because Eric Clapton's listening to the band's first two albums and in part because Rolling Stone is panning Cream and their and their shows and he puts together a new combo with Steve Winwood who's already broken up the Spencer Davis Group and now breaking up Traffic to form Blind Faith how did that go over Blind Faith Yeah not
2: very not very well at all the uh, album cover that was released was um Controversial, to say the least, and um, it wasn't available for sale in a lot of a lot of uh, record stores, uh, especially in chains, um, in department stores. They just wouldn't wouldn't uh, handle it. If you could get your hands on a on a copy and played it, it actually wasn't very good. Uh, everybody was really restrained, and um, the. Uh, well, tour that they did was very unsuccessful. I mean,
0: it was a big
2: letdown.
0: Yeah, the, the cover featured a, a nude adolescent girl, nude from the waist up, and I believe you could still go to jail for having that picture on your computer today, so it was, yeah, ill-advised. And another group that comes together, multiple groups are spinning off members. You've got the Birds firing David Crosby, Graham Nash leaves the Hollies, the Buffalo Springfield breaks up and leaves Steve Stills at ends. What's the super group that comes out of that? Crosby Stills, Nash, and Young. Uh, I guess they,
2: I guess they're a super group i I was not terribly impressed. I remember reading hype about them from Almond uh before they released the record saying he'd never heard harmonies like that, but all I wanted to do was you know ship him a Stanley Brothers record, <laughs> but <laughs> so nonetheless the album were static. i mean. I
0: mean there was nothing innovative about it at all, but it's a huge success. And and yeah. uh, along with the emergence of hard rock, which Atlantic had with Led Zeppelin and Cream at all, you've now got soft rock, with which you know S- Stills and Young would still do electric pieces of the set, but primarily Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young is as three hippies sitting around in a circle strumming acoustic guitars, and it turns out there's an enormous market for that. There you know played their second gig ever i think at woodstock and gone to enjoy enormous success despite struggling with sound systems and the ravages of cocaine and and their harmony singing uh is their trademark and also a real difficulty for them trying to navigate playing in stadiums trying to do a very intimate show in stadiums so it's it's a difficult thing with this trend of breakups and, and coming back together also impacted Michael Bloomfield, who you mentioned, who put together Electric Flag, which was kind of his dream band, didn't break big. He got frustrated with Buddy Miles and, and other things, and didn't like touring. Quit that. Meanwhile, Al Cooper, who had played with Bloomfield on Dylan's big hit records, like I want to, um, like like a Rolling Stone, he's put together his dream band, which is also horn-centric, Blood Sweat and Tears, and put out one album, and then they fire Al Cooper he manages to, to pull off a pretty big coup in that he gets Michael Bloomfield to come down and, and record a session album. They call it Super Session. And the idea is it's going to be like a jazz album where we're just going to get some really good musicians together and improvise a set of songs. We're not going to spend months in the studio. We're not going to spend months trying to write songs. We're just going to jam and put it out. And it's a big success, even though Bloomfield drops out after a day and Stephen Stills has to come in and pick up the pieces. Yeah, the, the um
2: super session was I don't know, it it was a doomed idea. I mean, no, it wasn't it wasn't a doomed idea, you can't say that about a, a album that sold that much. But um I'm trying to remember who it was who said I, I walked into a record store the day they came out and I saw, you know, hundreds of copies passing over the counter. I thought, uh oh. I think that was Bloomfield himself. Yeah because that was not the direction any of them really wanted to go in because rock jamming is often an excuse just for self as because the record sold as well as it did, we get lots and lots of jam records, you know, jamming with Edward from the Rolling Stones and the uh, Grape
0: Jam by Moby Grape. And these, these are albums, you can't even listen to them anymore yeah the grape jam in particular is 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 awful and it's got bloomfield and cooper playing on it although they're playing uh bloomfield's playing the piano and and al cooper is not playing his trademark hammond organ so it's it's very disappointing uh from fans of moby grape and their second album like you mentioned does hit t- the t- number 20 on the charts but it's a portrait of a band in utter decline and disarray as skip spencer leader is Literally carted off to Bellevue, and 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 the band limps along, but never recoups the the massive amounts of money that Columbia had poured into them with big hopes a year earlier. But now I'm going to segue a little bit and 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 pull out something that was one of the biggest left field developments of 1968, and that's the return of Elvis Presley. And here's Elvis singing Guitar Man on his from his NBC TV special from late 1968.
2: Sunday, I am a little king Kingston with my guitar up my coat. I hitchhiked all the way down the Memphis, got a room in the YMCA I the next three weeks I went to hunt them nights I was looking for a place to play. Well I thought my picket would set up on fire But nobody wanted to hire a guitar What
0: well, I need. And that was Elvis Presley doing Guitar Man, which was the key theme around which uh, the Elvis 68 comeback special was built. How did this happen and what was the impact on the scene of Elvis's return? Well,
2: the Colonel, so called, the uh, Elvis's manager, had signed a deal with Singer Sewing Machines to sponsor an Elvis Presley Christmas special. And um, Elvis, you know, he he really didn't know what was going on. He was afraid he would have to sing a bunch of Christmas carols in between sewing machine commercials. And um, somehow uh, he rested a certain amount of creative control over over the program. And uh, with the Colonel's blessing, you know, he, the Colonel was saying, if, if, mr presley wants to do uh, uh, the material he'll do it you know and so they got um elvis's old you know band and some of his friends together to uh, to make him feel good and uh, they would sit backstage and and play guitars and sing and stuff and and uh, elvis did the choreography and and so forth for the the rest of the program. And they cobbled together a really interesting program where the the backstage sessions um, were moved also onto the the main stage with Elvis and his friends sitting around um, in the round, in the middle of an audience. And the whole thing revitalized him from being this kind of singing potato that made bad movies to the rock star that he always was and so at the end of the 68
0: uh, christmas special elvis was back and leather suited and ready to hit vegas and and go to memphis and actually record a good album for the first time in almost a decade but yeah one last thing i want to i want to hit on before we we close the door in this chapter is you go through A litany at two points in the chapter of just sort of basically lists of albums that came out around this time of artists that were being pushed and you've got one coterie of bands that nobody today has ever heard of I mean things like Pigeon, Rhinoceros, Cack, The Serpent Power, The Wildflower, Zachary Thax, The Harbinger Complex, Crow you know so many albums were coming out that some interesting and forgotten stuff was out there in the wild And, and you know some of these like most of those bands nobody remembers and if you go got the trouble to look them up you'll you'll discover why but at the same <laughs> time there's a lot of interesting stuff coming out some of which made a dent in the scene at the time like dr john the night tripper or the kinks later albums the velvet underground was was putting out albums and captain beefheart probably the weirdest eccentric of all put out uh, his masterpiece trout mouse replica well, how was that received at the time it was uh, considered
2: the most horrible thing ever committed to wax <laughs> which it is in some ways yeah it was a total assault
0: on the idea of progressive rock and everything else and and it's interesting when you go back and look at captain beefheart in context because he was one of the most gifted white blues singers of his generation. He had, you know, minor hits in California in the mid-sixties with uh, Diddy Wa Diddy and others. And he assembled a really crack band, a number of crack bands actually, of of some of the best blues musicians, blues rock musicians in Central California and LA. He was very tight with Frank Zappa, who's been successful as we've talked about in past episodes at one point Ry Cooter was in his band uh, his first album on A&M was well received I mean you know you see pictures of the Beatles wearing Captain Beefheart stickers along with their Moby Grape pins and, and so they were you know I think people were expecting Beefheart to follow the crowd and, and continue this prog rock blues thing but instead he goes into this bizarre you can't call it free jazz because it's not improvised at all no, and, no, it was,
2: but it's influenced it was,
0: by free jazz, and he taught the band their
2: parts. Nobody got to improvise. It was it was uh, as much as passing out sheet music, but uh, he taught every even the drummer had to play the part that B wanted.
0: And so and if you. If you read Drumbo French's, uh, John French, a.k.a. Drumbo, his, his autobiography and his story, b would throw these parts at him, Beefheart would sit at the piano and, and say, here's a part, and here's another part for the song. And they would be in different time signatures and different keys. And drum would actually have to sit there and do the math and figure out, okay, this piece is in 7-8 time, and this other thing is in 3-4 time. If you multiply that out, you <laughs> get the best <laughs> common denominator. And then he would figure that out and teach each member their part. And Beefart ran the thing like a cult. He's barely feeding these guys uh, and making them rehearse up to eight hours a day. Right. It was. It was a really crazy. God knows what he was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> no. T- no telling. But he's left a, a body of work that's still being listened to and and puzzled over today. Um, I think the last thing I want to mention is that the folk scene is still. We talked about Dylan, who's morphing into country rock, and with his album Nashville Skyline, you know, dueting with not Johnny Cash and recording in Nashville, he's gone country. But meanwhile, the folk scene is still um, having an impact on the pop scene, most particularly in the persons of Simon and Garfunkel.
2: Yeah, they, they um, that's an interesting story. They, they started out as a pop duo, Tom and Jerry, and had a small hit called Hey School Girl, but, you know, they were always friends. They attended Columbia University together. Um, Paul Simon decided what he really wanted to do was write songs like Bob Dylan. So he um, he dropped out of college and went to England where he toured the folk circuit and got a deal with Columbia Records, UK division, which um, called the, the Paul Simon Songbook. Pretty, it was never released in this country. And then um, he came back and hooked up with Art Garfunkel, and uh, they recorded an acoustic album together. And uh, their producer, Tom Wilson, got the idea that it should be a folk rock album, so he overdubbed a whole uh, overdubbed all those the songs on the, um, on the sounds Simon of silence. Gar- yeah, and turned it into The Sounds of Silence, which was a huge hit, which neither of the guys knew that they had been,
0: you know, rocked up by their producer. And, and that's a big hit in 66. Then they lay off in 67 and come roaring back in 68 with a massive hit that's featured in the soundtrack of a movie called The Graduates. Right. That, that was, um, in fact, that song just about sold Um, the movie (laughs) (laughs) this is yeah it's a perfect soundtrack and then they followed up with the bookends album which you know features the moog synthesizer and uh, audio verite interviews with senior citizens but it's packed with other hits and is a, a massive success and lays the groundwork for even bigger success to come with bridge over troubled water but we'll be talking about that and many other developments in the world of rock next time when edward returns to continue discussing his history of rock and roll volume two 1964 to 1977 the beatles the stones and the rise of classic rock ed as always it's a treat to talk to you yeah it was fun let's
1: do it again sometime (laughs) we shall Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let it Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Ed Ward will be back to talk about 1969, Woodstock, and the invention of the 60s. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 2, 1964-1977, The Beatles, The Stones, and The Rise of Classic Rock is published by Flatiron Books. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.